I see dead people. I see dead people and they're everywhere. This was the famous line of the nine-year-old in the movie, The Sixth Sense. If you remember, the nine-year-old was sitting, uh, laying in that bed and talking to the doctor played by Uh, played by Bruce Willis, and he's saying, I see dead people, and they're everywhere. And this was a confession that he was making, that he was the only one. He had this, at nine years old, this unusual uh, ability, this sixth sense, to see dead people. And before we write that off as some sci-fi horror film, the stuff that only happens in the movies... That's exactly what's happening here in Ephesians chapter 2. Paul is saying it's not as it appears. Paul is saying, I see dead people, and they're everywhere. You see, in Ephesians chapter 2, he wants us to understand that we are a community that was once dead. That those that have not been called out by God, those that are not found in Christ are dead, that we are not people that were on our last leg. We are not people limping through life. We are not people drowning in the ocean. We are people at the bottom of the ocean dead. We are not in the hospital room needing a little, uh, needing an IV or, or needing some medicine. We are dead. Paul wants us to understand that before you were in Christ, before you were rescued, you were dead. And it's important to understand this story of rescue in Ephesians chapter 2. It's, in, it's important to understand that we were once dead in our trespasses because we'll never understand the beauty and the, and the breadth and the depth of our rescue until we understand that we were once dead in our trespasses. Why do we need to be rescued? Why do we need an intervention? Why do we need God to rescue his people? Because we were dead. We're not drowning. We're at the bottom of the sea, and we need life. Theologians would look at Ephesians chapter 2, and they would call this concept that we just read total depravity. That the idea of total depravity is that you are totally dead, that you are totally depraved, that we do not have the ability on our own accord by our nature to reach out and grab the life vest. But it's God coming down to us and breathing life into our dead bodies and raising us from death to life. That on our own accord and by our nature, we are dead people. And it is God who pursues us. It's God who rescues us. It is God who makes the first move because we are dead in our trespasses and totally depraved. And he wants us to understand, you'll never understand the beauty and the depth and the breadth of your rescue until you understand this concept. You're not just sick people, you're dead people. And in Ephesians 1, uh, chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, he wants us to understand the depth of this. And he also wants us to understand that not only are we dead, and that's the reason we need to be rescued, but he wants us to understand the reason for us being dead. How did this happen? Well, as you continue on in chapter 
two, it says what? You were disobedient. And in verse three, it says, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body. It takes us back to where? It takes us back to Genesis chapter three, the fall. This is where it all began. It's when we made the decision. It's when our first parents, Adam and Eve, made the decision that God was not going to be the center of, the, of our lives, that God was not gonna be on the throne, that we were gonna put ourselves on the throne, that we were gonna put ourselves at the center of our lives, that we were gonna put ourselves at the center of our universe and what happens all hell breaks loose and sin and chaos and confusion would forever mark the human race it would forever mark humanity and death entered into the world the reason we're dead is because we thought we bought the lie that putting myself at the center will bring me life when instead putting myself at the center of my own universe actually brought me death. It says they lived according to the passions of their flesh. My life for me, it's all about me, it's all about I. Carrying out the desires of our body, anything that I wanted, anything I needed, because why? Life is all about me. We often say, we often hear people say inside and outside of the church that this millennial generation, they are so self-centered. Wish we could go back to the good old days. The selfie generation, if I hear that one more time, this is not the first generation that has been self-centered. This is not the first generation that says, my life is all about me. This has happened from the beginning of time. In Genesis chapter three, we said it is all about me. It is all about I. The world revolves around me. This is not something that happened in the last 10 years. Understand that. From the beginning of time, we have suffered. We take the place only reserved for God. And it resulted in death. So the first thing you have to understand this, this morning in Ephesians 2, this story of God's rescue, is that why do we need to be rescued? Is because we are dead in our trespasses. We need to be rescued from the dead, not just a little help. The second thing we have to look at here in this passage is not only why we need to be rescued because we're dead, we, we can see here in Ephesians chapter two how we're rescued from the dead. And we see that in verse four. In light of our deadness, in light of our sin, in light of our trespasses, in light of us saying my life exists for me, I'm gonna put myself at the center of my universe. Paul comes in with the gospel. And he says, but God, but God. We expect Paul to say, God just said, you know what, I've had enough. Sons of disobedience lived their life for themselves, carried out the desires of their flesh, and we expect, and God had every right to go, you know what, enough is enough, have a nice day. But Paul says, but God, according to his rich mercies, did what? He raises us from death to life. It says it in verse six, that he raised us up with him. Who is the him? Jesus Christ, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Raised, what's that word? It's resurrection. Just as Jesus was what? Jesus was dead and was raised from the dead and given life. Paul says in Christ Jesus, in Christ Jesus, 
You, too, are dead and raised from death to life in Him. Don't miss that. And what does He do? What does Paul say God does? He raises us up from death to life and seats us where? Seats us with Him. He seats us in the heavenly places. See, the ancients would have understood something about this. Very often in a military battle, the the conquering hero, the war hero, would be welcomed in by the king. And because of your courage, because of your bravery, because you have defeated the enemy, the king would welcome home the war hero and he would seat him at his right hand. And what Paul is saying is that is exactly what Jesus has done, but he seats you there as well. He seats you with Jesus Christ as the conquering war hero, not because you have defeated death, but because Jesus has defeated death on your behalf and that you get to sit with Jesus in the seat of honor, not because of anything you've done, but because of everything Jesus has done. He raises us from death to life and because Jesus sits there and because we are found in Jesus, he sits there too. You sit there too with him. And think about the glorious picture of the gospel here. What an incredible picture of what God has done through Christ. Because you have taken the seat of God, you deserve the cross. And in the message of the gospel, it announces this. The message of the gospel announces this, that although you have taken the seat of honor and you deserve the cross, God says, I am going to send my son to take your cross, and you will take Jesus' seat at the right hand of God the Father. You swap places. That's the beauty of God's gospel. That is the good news of his grace, that Jesus gets the cross and you get the seat of honor. And that is good news, that he raises us from death to life. Jesus gets what we deserve, and we get what only is reserved for Jesus Christ and deserved by Jesus Christ. Robert Raymond, uh, the late Robert Raymond, who taught systematic theology here at Knox Seminary for many years, brilliant man, wrote his own one-volume systematic theology, which is an impressive feat in and of itself, a man that could talk about very technical, complicated things that go over your head, and it was amazing. Any time in class he would get to John 3.16, he couldn't finish. He would say, for God so loved the world, and he would begin to weep, and he would say, Brothers, there's many things I understand. There's many things I attempt to understand, but I will never understand that God loves the world. I will never understand that God loves me. But through the person of Jesus Christ, and because of Jesus Christ, And because we're found in Jesus Christ, God looks down at you and says, I love you, but you'll never be able to understand that. Why do we need rescue? Because we're dead. How does God rescue us through Jesus Christ? By Jesus taking our cross and by us being raised from death to life and seated at the right hand of the God, of God the Father. And lastly, What's the result of this rescue? 
We know we need to be rescued. We know how we're rescued. But what is the result of this rescue? Verse 10, what does it result in? It says in verse 10 that we are his workmanship. In light of God's grace, we are his workmanship. And that word for workmanship there is not a thing that we can overlook. It is actually the word in Greek is poema. It comes from the word poem. Translated, for we are God's poem. What a beautiful thing. That we, in light of God's grace, are God's poem that he recites over and over and over and over again. That we are God's poem, this beautiful poem that he always recites and forever remembers. You are God's poem in light of his grace and in light of his mercy. You are a work of art. And that's good news. Regardless of where you've been this morning, regardless of what your life has looked like, regardless of the good things you've done or the bad things you've done, regardless of where you've come from this life, your family, your culture, your background in Christ, God looks at you and he says, you are God's poem. You are God's work of art, his treasure possession forever. And in light of that, In light of understanding our being, in light of understanding who we are, he says, you are his poem, you are his piece of art, you are his workmanship, created in Christ for good works. See, that is always the pattern. It is the pattern throughout the Bible of being and then doing. It is not doing and then being. It is not do this for God and then you will be his work of art. It is understand that you are his work of art. You are his treasured possession. Now go out and do on behalf of the king, on behalf of God. Because you are his workmanship. You are his piece of art. Understand who you are first, saved and redeemed and adopted. Understand your being, and then you can understand what you are called to do. The world says, what I do determines who I am. Only Christianity says, who I am determines what I do. Only Christianity says that. And we have the privilege of partnering with God, that God says, I am going to redeem you and save you, and I am going to bring you into my family as my work of art, as my treasured possession. And guess what? You get to go out in light of your standing with me, in light of your redemption, and you get to do good works. Now, Paul might be confused. Because Isaiah tells us that our works are nothing but filthy rags. Did Paul miss that? No, he didn't miss it. No, Isaiah says our works are filthy rags because we're not connected to God. Isaiah says our works are nothing but filthy rags. Why? Because according to our nature, our works exist for us. It exists for our flourishing. They exist for our well-being. They exist for us to get to the top. But Paul is saying in Christ, the good works that are done in Christ Jesus, those exist for others. It is only when you have been rescued by God, when you've been redeemed by God, that even your good works are redeemed by God, that your works go from being filthy rags to being good 
because they have been redeemed by Jesus Christ. And my works no longer exist for myself, but the good works that I'm called to do through sanctification are now to be for others because I remember that I am fully loved and fully accepted and have everything that I need in Jesus Christ. Now I can do the good works that God has called me to do. We become a picture of God's grace. The process of God's grace by which your works are no longer for yourself, but they're for others. I'm no longer the center of my universe. God is the center of my universe. Now my good works flow out of me as a picture and a testimony of God's grace. The good works that we perform are redeemed by the blood of Jesus. Not only do you need to be redeemed, but your works need to be redeemed as well so that they're no longer filthy rags existing for yourself, but they exist for others. And what do the good works do? The good works that we perform on behalf of the king point back to another. Our works do not point back to us. They point back to God. They point back to his grace. They point back to his kingship. They point back to what he has done for us. That's the reason work is so hard for us, because we're idolaters. The reason work is hard. The reason work is idolatrous. The reason work is tiring because we are idolaters. Our work exists for ourselves to make our name great, to make us look good. But when we realize that God is the center of our universe, work becomes the pleasure, becomes the delight of our heart. We don't work so we flourish. We work for the flourishing of others. There was once a seminary professor who was speaking to a group of seminary students in a preaching class, and he said, one day I'm going to I'm going to come to your church, and I'm not going to evaluate how good a preacher you are. I'm not going to evaluate how eloquent you are in the pulpit. He says, I'm going to talk to the assistants. I'm going to talk to the facilities crew. I'm going to talk to the least of these. I'm going to talk to the people that are on the front lines of ministry. I'm going to talk to the pastors and the directors and the deacons and the elders. I'm going to talk to the widows and the, and the orphans because then they will tell me if you really understand this grace thing. They'll tell me if you really understand that your life does not exist for you, but your life exists now for others. They'll tell me if you really believe that the grace of God has transformed you in such a way that you do not exist for the flourishing of yourself, but the flourishing of others in this world. If you have people in your workplace that work under you and you're a Christian, they do not work to make you look good. If you have people that work under you, you they are there for you to serve they are there for you to pour into them, to serve them so that they flourish and not you flourish. The world says the people work for you so that you look good and you flourish. The gospel says you serve them in good works so that they flourish. What a paradigm shifter. You serve them, they don't serve us. Does it sound familiar? Where do we get this? We serve them. Why? because Jesus has served us. It's 
why the church for centuries has been on the front lines of adoption. Why? Because we've been adopted. It's why the church for centuries has been on the front lines of serving the least of these in our community, serving the poor. Why? Because we are poor and destitute and in need of the riches of God's grace. You see, all of our good works are plagiarized works. They're works that are copied from the great work of Jesus Christ. Let me end with this. Going back to verse 9, it says, it's not a result of works so that no one can boast. No one can boast. Boasting, often we think of bragging, but it's more than bragging. See, in military battles, what they would do, the ancients understood what it meant to boast. Before they went into battle, they would beat their chest and raise their voices loud, and they would say, we have the greatest king, and we have the strongest army, and we have the greatest military weaponry, and we have the power, and we have the strength, and they would boast. Whether they believed it or not, they would convince themselves and they would build their own confidence. That was boasting. And then the other side would do the same thing. Well, we have the greatest king and we have the greatest military power and we have the greatest defenses and we're going to beat you and they would beat their chest. And that was boasting. And what Paul wants us to understand here, through being rescued by the grace of God, he wants you to understand that you have nothing that you can boast in, that you go through life fighting the enemy, going through life, through the struggles of life and the sufferings of life and the hardships of life, and that you on your, by yourself have nothing that you can boast in. But Paul will later say what in Galatians? Galatians chapter 6, verse 14. He does tell us to boast, but he says, but far be it. Far be it from me to boast in anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. He says, on your own, by yourself, you have nothing to boast in except for the cross of Jesus Christ. So I ask you this morning, what is your boast? Is it your bank account? Is it your resilience? Is it your kids? So it's where you've come from. What is your boast this morning? Because the people of God, the people of God boast in one thing, and it's in Jesus Christ. I love this story, and I'll close with this. It's called Why I Don't Believe in Grace Anymore. It says, it's 9 p.m., and I walk in the door still carrying the burdens of a day at my office. The kids are already in bed, eyelids heavy, but holding out for a good night from daddy. My wife is tired, but smiling and happy to see me, and I don't want any of it. I stomp around, tearing open the mail, griping about food that isn't in the fridge, acting like a serious jerk. And in some secret place inside of me, I know it, but somehow it only makes it worse. I wait for the rebuke of my wife, the well-earned rebuke, the angry, I don't deserve this, but it isn't forthcoming. Instead, she kisses me on the cheek, she says that she loves me, goes to bed with the same smile on her face. I stand by myself in the kitchen, but I have two companions, my bad mood and my wife's grace. 
I still felt grumpy, but I discovered there was something else there inside of me. I wanted to apologize. I went up to the bedroom and I told her I was sorry. I told her, and her response was quick, and she continued with grace. And she says this, honey, you've had a long day. You're allowed to be in a bad mood, and you're a good man. I knew you'd apologize. I used to say I believe in grace. I don't say that anymore. Now I say that I've known it. You will never, ever understand the depth of your rescue. You will never, ever understand what you are called to do as the community and the people of God unless not only you believe in grace, but you've known it, you've experienced it that your good works as Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church are a reflection on the great grace of God, that your good works as a church, as you go out from this place, your good works serve as your only boast to say, don't look at me, but look to the cross by which I have been crucified to, that I have been crucified to the cross and the cross to me. That is our boast and our good works as we go out are a testimony of God's rescue, a testimony of God's grace grace because we've known it and we've experienced it and it's forever changed us. May we be a church that goes out from this place understanding the depth of our rescue and understanding the breadth and the width and the incredible privilege that we have, the calling that God has placed on our lives to boast in one thing, the cross of Jesus Christ, and that our good works, our sanctified good works would go out from here and that people would go, I want to know more about that God. I want to know more about that Jesus. I want to know more about that cross. May that be your boast. May that be your only boast, the people, the community of God that have been rescued this morning.